Like buried treasures, the outposts of the universe have beckoned to the adventurous from immemorial times. Princes and potentates, political and industrial, equally with men of science, have felt the lure of the uncharted seas of space. The Interplanetary Podcast. The exploration of space for the benefit of all mankind. Your hosts here in London, Matthew Russell and Jamie Franklin. Do you know who that was, Jamie? Uh, it wasn't G-E-H, was it? It was G-E-H. George Ellery Hale, who was born 150 years ago on this day, if you're listening on Friday. Beautiful stuff. Yeah, how about that? 150 years ago. And he was an American solar astronomer, so he's very, very well known for discovering magnetic fields in sunspots and things like that. Uh, but he's also, he's left a load of enormous telescopes all around the place, like the 100-inch hooker reflecting telescope. Do you want to finish off that quote? And through their provision of instrumental means, the sphere of exploration has made new discoveries and brought back permanent additions to our knowledge of the heavens. What a dude. Absolute dude. Yeah, do you know Fox Mulder always used to put his name down as George E. Hale? Really? On the X-Files, yeah. yeah. Never knew that. Check that out. Bit of snippet of trivia. Beautiful. But not only that, born 200 years ago today, this is like 20... Uh, there must have been something going on on the 29th of June in astronomy and space, because, yeah, 200 yeah. years ago is Pietro Angelo Secchi. Wow. Who is an Italian astronomer, and he was uh, one of the first people to really state authoritatively... Authoritatively. You can do this, Matt. I believe in you. He was one of the very first scientists to state authoritatively that the sun is a star. Oh, finally. But not only That's incredible. That, but not only that, Charles Joseph Precourt. Now we've talked about Precourt before because I think he's been on flights with our mate Mike Fole. Big MF. The Big MF, and uh, yeah, he's now <laughs> the president, vice president of Orbital ATK in Utah. Mm. He flies a Varese, which is which he built himself, designed by Bert Rutan of Spaceship One fame. Mm. Yeah, man. And uh, so yeah, he was born on the 29th. Of June, also in 1955. 55? Well, yeah. we're getting closer. Now, also, on the 29th of June, 1995, the Atlantis docks with the Russian space station Mir for the first time. And who do you think was piloting it? Oh, I don't know. Go on. Charles Precourt. What? So, on his 40th birthday, he was docking the space shuttle to the Mir... Space Station, how cool is that? Well, Matt, I hope on my 40th birthday I'm docking something. <laughs> um, Matt, you know what I love, and that I was gutted wasn't in last week's podcast? What do, what do you love? Go on, hit me. Word of the week. Space word of the week. So what we got? Well, how about this? A true anomaly. Oof. You'd think that that meant something completely different, wouldn't you? Like a like a UFO. What does true yeah. anomaly mean in space? It's actually the angular distance of a point in an orbit past the point of periapsis. Now, I like this because we learned what periapsis was. Exactly. If you were all listening. One of the early word of the weeks. There will be a test. An anomaly is, is yeah, a sort of point on a, on a path of an elliptical orbit. Um, so it's generally measured within respect to an apsis, be that a periapsis or an apoapsis. Mm. Um, but in this case, uh, yes, the true anomaly is measured to the periapsis. How cool is that? My favourite is the semi-major axis. Semi-major axis, yeah. So if, you've got, if you want to describe an orbit, you've got to define six quantities called the orbital elements. And maybe we should have all of these as word of the week. We've got semi-major axis, eccentricity, which I think describes you, inclination, uh, which yeah. describes me, <laughs> argument of periapsis. I love that one. That describes Mike Fole. <laughs> Time of periapsis. Passage yep. and longitude of ascending node. Mm. 
Yeah, but sometimes, of course, people talk about the period or the true anomaly. Isn't that good? So that's oh, really I've cool, learned something new today. Yeah, the true anomaly. I didn't realise that anomaly could be used like that. But there we go. Yeah. Lovely stuff. So what's been happening in the news, Jamie? Well, we've got the end of Proton, Matt. I don't want you to be too sad. That is a little bit sad. And I must admit, I didn't realise how old Proton was. For some, in my head, I thought it was a reasonably modern rocket because it looks pretty modern. Well, Matt, it's Russian not. officials have confirmed the Proton rocket will finally reach its end. In an interview with a Russian publication, Dmitry Rogozin said production of the Proton booster will cease as production shifts to the new Angara booster. Indeed. So there we go, end of an era. So yeah, that has been around, yeah, before they put man on the moon. So just as I put that into context. Matt, yeah. one of our favourite people uh, in, in the world, on our planet, has to be the legend that is Buzz Aldrin. But he's having Not a bad absolutely. week, isn't he? He really is having a bad week. This, this is actually, this caused a lot of sadness on my Twitter feed. Lots of people yeah, I was comment, commenting. I was really sad about the whole thing. That, that, so, yeah, he's, he appears to be, have fallen out with his family. Who've, they, they want to take, that, that they say he's confused and, uh, and too, uh, yeah, too, too confused and, and too much memory loss to look after his own finances. So they want to be... Uh, guardians of his finances which he's saying nobody will look after my finances um, and he's very upset because he said that they blocked him from getting married so very sad yeah, yeah there's all sorts of stuff going on so obviously something very very sad and tragic is happening in the poor mm. old Buzz Aldrin and I really hope I really really hope that it all gets sorted out before I do the 50th anniversary because that's coming up 50th anniversary is not far away now and wouldn't it be sad if it was if if the news was all about the breakdown of poor old Buzz Aldrin's life and, and a legend left a little bit sad and I know. And I mean dejected. nothing's more that'd important be, than family, Matt. So we need to just hope that this gets sorted out. Now Matt, mm-hmm. if I said to you complete gallery, mm-hmm. what would you say to me? I would think you'd probably be referring to uh the Rosetta mission yes and the fact that all the high resolution images are now available in isa's archives what are you waiting for literally get over there sharpish yeah and, and remember my little song about how to remember the name churyumov garisomenko there we go see i actually re- did actually remember it from that, that little song also <laughs> downloadable as a ringtone <laughs> How cool is that? So you, you can go and see those absolutely brilliant pictures, including, obviously, the finding the fillet lander when it was hidden behind the little rock. Mm. Uh, as Rosetta itself descended to the comet's surface, all of that's now available as very high-resolution images and all the data that came off that. So It's just so beautiful. Get your PhD paper ready. Get it ready. So, Matt, can you give me an update, please, on the Indian Space Agency? What? ISRO? Yeah. Yes, I can. It was announced by K. Sivan, the chairman of ISRO, at the Unispace Plus 50 conference in Vienna, Hmm. um, that they're going to be going to help uh, nations like United Arab Emirates and African nations to uh, with the technical know-how on how to build satellites. So they're going to be going all around the world, giving support for people who want to build their own native satellites. That's a really good initiative, isn't it? So they're, really they're out is. there. Yeah, so the Indians are exporting their technical expertise from one of my favourite space programmes there is. I mean, it's literally done on such a low budget and, you know, carrying satellites on horse and carts to their launches and things like that. It's is, genius. It's epic. It? It's epic yeah. in the early days. Uh, so, yeah. Just so you know, that Unispace Plus 50 is a, is a conference that's been going on, uh, which is the 50th anniversary of the UN conference on the exploration and peaceful use of outer space. Oof. Yeah. There we go. Spine-tingling so, stuff. So a little bit of that is in my chat with David Baker that we should be coming up shortly. But it's a that very is coming up. I... Part two of Alan Bond. That's not for a couple of weeks. Oh, for... F- yeah, so this week we're in a bit of a rush because I've got to fly to Paris to fly to Kourou because I'm off to see the largest booster ever made. I'm so jealous. And on your plane is going to be Eric Berger. 
Yeah, I know. How cool is that? One of our Bezzy mates in the industry. Bezzy? You're sad to be leaving me behind, but you're, you're going for mankind, aren't you, Matt? I tell you what's a brilliant piece of news, Jamie. Yeah. I re- which I really like, is the Royal Observatory in Greenwich mm. is going to start looking at the sky again after a 60-year break. Why have they had that long a break? Well, because apparently pollution in the city has been such that it, it basically makes observation pretty pointless. Mm. Uh, but the pollution has decreased by so much, which, which, which doesn't... That's, that's counterintuitive, isn't it, when you go into London and you can't really breathe properly? But yeah. hey, uh, apparently it's, it's decreased enough so that they can actually start uh, observing again. God, that's brilliant news. So they've installed a new telescope in the Grade 2 listing, listed Alt-Azimuth Pavilion. Uh, it's going to be named after a forgotten superhero of British astronomy, Annie Maunder. One of the first yes. female scientists to work at the Royal Observatory Greenwich. Yeah. Who made key discoveries, Matt, about the sun. The sun itself. Our parent star. Beautiful. And I'll tell you what else is in uh, UK space news this week. Go on. Uh, I saw this on the... This was on the radio. It wasn't in much of the press, but it was on the radio when I woke up the, the other day. And that the uh, UK Space Agency are donating £4 million to, to create a kind of fund for special projects to go towards the NHS in its 70th anniversary year. Oh, that's lovely. Yeah, just so, just for our foreign listeners, we were in in Britain. We have a thing called the NHS, which is uh, means that anyone can go and 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 have healthcare at free at point of source. National Health Service. And, uh, we're very proud of it, and it's our, it's the seventieth anniversary this year. So yeah, the, the UK space are joining in now. Can you name some projects that have uh, previous examples of space tech being adapted for NHS use? Yes, Matt, I can. Uh, first up, a pill camera that can be swallowed by patients. I mean, how amazing is that to start with? Um, dementia tracking slippers, breast screening vans that beam images back to assessment centres, wearable monitors that help prevent falls among the elderly, and finally, um, an app that can prevent skin cancer. I mean... Yes, 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 please. Tick, 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 tick. So, yeah, I think that's really interesting, isn't it, that, they, that they've stumped up this huge amount of money to kind of make people think of possible applications for all Britain's brilliant space tech um, to uh, help the NHS. It's just genius. Uh, I, I love it. More of that. We will on, don't we? We do. So by the end of this week, because we're recording this early, we're recording this on Tuesday because I've got to fly, as I said, to South America. Um, we've recorded a bit early. So by the end of this week, by the end of this week, we should have seen the first commercial launch from New Zealand with an electron rocket. Tick. We should have seen the last SpaceX Block 4 booster flown. Tick. With... C- with CRS-15, and that contains an interesting little project called the Biari, which is a four-nation defence project. So Australia, US, UK and Canada have built three 3U CubeSats for precision flying. So it's going to be, yeah, so it's like a precision, it's uh, it's like a sort of tester to see how precise they can fly these little CubeSats around. How cool is that? It's just super cool. I love that. What a week. So here is... My chat with David Baker. Roll it. Equity. I'm joined again for my monthly chat with David Baker. Hello, David. How are you? Hello, Matt. I'm just fine, thank you, and I hope you are too. I am indeed uh, a little bit um, a little bit weary from the week. Been a hard week again, <laughs> but hey, <laughs> <laughs> we, all, we, we all have those, Matt. And the uh, problem oh, is they seem to come very frequently. I was going to say they, they? <laughs> they don't seem to be giving up at all at the moment. Um, <laughs> um, so uh, we're going to be talking about a, a few topics. Uh, uh, so why don't you start us off with um, Space Force? The Trump Space Force. Yes, this yes. is not the latest uh, Hollywood blockbuster, but uh, you think it probably could be from the way that it's uh, it's been going, because uh, right out of nowhere, left field, I guess, is the appropriate uh, phrase from where it's coming from. Um, the Trump administration has decided that that it would very much like to take a minority. 
um, proposal from a few people involved with military space operations in the United States and create a space force, which would be the sixth national security force um, that the United States has, which is after the U.S. Air Force, uh, the Army, the Navy, um, the Marine Corps, the Coast Guards, which are part of the National Security Service, and a space force, which would be the sixth U.S. force. There's opposition to this from the Air Force itself because, of course, that service um, really going back almost as far as, as the origin of the U.S. Air Force itself because that was formed <clears throat> in September 1947. Prior to that, and all the way through the Second World War, it was, it was under the Army and became a separate independent force when the Department of Defense was formed in 1947. The Pentagon had been built, <clears throat> um, and so the, the Air Force itself was acquiring a whole new set of prized responsibilities and strutting its stuff as an independent force, which, which the Army were reluctant to release, but nevertheless it was all part of this national security agenda of the post-war world. Um, and from the early 1950s, really, the Air Force began to lay claim to responsibilities for space activities, because this is before Sputnik, this is long before NASA, and so anything that was to do with space that was projected forward was felt to be part of national security interests, and hey, the Air Force was seizing the high ground, and for a while, surprisingly, there was competition from its old owner, the Army, uh, who had Von Brown, and during the 1950s, they were both vying for top spot in taking charge of the space program when it appeared. And it's interesting to reflect, isn't it, that uh, the first satellites that were were approved in the United States were highly classified spy satellites approved by the Eisenhower administration three years before, four years before NASA was formed. So in 1954, with the, the authorization to start development of intercontinental ballistic missiles, Atlas and Titan, there was already an awareness that space was going to be a very, very important part of the military agenda, initially for, for spying, for reconnaissance, for surveillance. And Eisenhower was paranoid about aerial reconnaissance, penetration flights over into the Soviet Union <clears throat> would completely destabilize the balance of power and that it could provoke the Russians into some preemptive military attacks in Eastern or in against Western Europe. Um, and, and so this was all kept highly secret. And then a year after that decision to give the Air Force responsibility for developing spy satellites, came, of course, the decision as a cover for space operations to announce that it would launch satellites for the International Geophysical Year. And so in this slowly evolving, no haste needed <clears throat> um, agenda, the United States on the civilian side began to develop scientific satellites for the IGY, and while the Air Force all along had the big, big agenda. So right the way back, really, to the mid-1950s, the Air Force have always felt they were there first. They were there taking control of, of space operations, and it was really only with Sputnik that there was suddenly this great public demand who knew nothing about the development of this uh, secret corona program, as we know it now, um, until the Air Force came out into the open and announced it had basically a scientific research the, um, program for space, which was the Discoverer program. And that was the public name for the highly classified Corona spy satellites. So as the space program opened up, and NASA, much to the disgust of the Air Force, were brought in to run the big space program, all the way along the Air Force always has, has had more money than NASA for space. And uh, so, so it continued along. Now there is the feeling right at the far end of the 60 years on, um, there is the belief among a lot of service officials on the civilian side, <clears throat> as well as quite a number in the Air Force itself, in space 
Command, which is a separate unified command within the Air Force. The force is divided into all these various commands, Air Combat Command <clears throat> and, and Space Command, etc. Um, there's a feeling that really it's not the kind of career path that you would choose to get stars on your epaulets. And so there has been pressure for there to be much more recognition outside being just one of the many U.S. Air Force commands. And there was discussion last year in Congress quite extensively about all this, and some were suggesting a space corps. And others said that wanted complete independence from the Air Force. Well, that's fine, but we're still going to be a sub-function of the Air Force. And so Trump has been listening to some voices who actually, has to be said, are very much in the minority in the defense establishment to have an independent space force because they feel that way. It will get the leverage. It will get the fast track. It will not have to go all the way up the chains of command to the chief of the air staff in the Pentagon and then all the way back down again for decisions to be enacted. And these tussles have always been the problem in the U.S. Air Force. The U.S. Air Force always used to have the senior leadership from the fighter boys. Bomber commanders never got to command the Air Force itself. And because of the succession of air combat operations that the Air Force participated in from the Korean War between 50 and 53, Vietnam in the 1960s, Iraq. <clears throat> Whenever you look at it, the big frontline banner headlines have always been about the fighter boys going in and taking control of the air. The slugging operations of the bomber forces and the logistical flow of the transport guys just get hidden among the dazzle of the publicity surrounding fighter pilots. And so you've had always within the Air Force these inter-command struggles. And this is just the latest, but it's got the attention of the president. And hey-ho, he's decided there is going to be a space force. But this has to go back now to Congress because the Air Force is playing very quiet on this because it does not have responsibility. It is the civilian administration in the Pentagon, which is what the Pentagon is all about, under the civilian Secretary of Defense, who isn't a uniformed officer, but, but, but he is an appointee from the White House, approved by Congress to head up the civilian administration of the, the Air Force. Um, he has to bring this under a strategy plan for the White House then to take it to Congress, and Congress really has to debate this, and it won't be until August that we get the determination from the Air Force, but this is serious stuff, and and it, it really, it, it, it's, it's scary talk to some who feel it's the foot in the door for weapons in space. I'm not so sure we should be that worried about it, and I think clarity has been defined through a seminar that was held last month in London, which was which was co-supported by the British Interplanetary Society and Spaceflight Magazine, uh, looking at the whole defence infrastructure in the UK, both now and post-Brexit, with regard to how the national security interests of the UK are controlled. And Matt, that is a very, very interesting point for British listeners with regard to how those changes are going to happen in this country. So it's, it's, so it's going to be a similar deal over here. We, we, it looks like we will probably follow suit with the Americans. Is, is, is that the deal here? What is already going to be happening, um, the Secretary of the Defence Minister, Gavin Williamson, has, has already said um, that there are plans in place to give the Royal Air Force now total command of our national security interests in space. Space is becoming very important for the Ministry of Defence UK here in Whitehall, in London. And currently, much like in America, the space forces, although they're much bigger, hugely big, and of course have administration of all the launches of spy satellites, military satellites, the whole lot. Um, we don't do that here in the UK, obviously, but just as Space Command is subsumed as a part of the United States Air Force, so too over here, 
previously to the present has command of all our space-related interests from all of the various armed forces actually been under a joint forces command, as it's called, the JFC. Now the Ministry of Defence is reorganising it, and, and this is not up for discussion. It's already been agreed, and it's already got the nod of Parliament, <clears throat> that it will be under the Royal Air Force, which will combine the Space Operations Centre, which is located at High Wycombe, with the National Air Operations Centre, and this will be renamed National Air and Space Operations Centre. So all of the command and control of our space-related activities, which are global um, in order to support our armed forces, wherever they are in the world, as well as to provide secure communications. And it's all the way up to and including wonderfully exotic things like telemedicine, where our field hospitals in combat zones are supported by communications links so that specialist surgeons in London using telemedicine can see through a head-mounted camera operations being conducted in the field, whether addressing combat wounds or anything like that. So these links are really vital. It's not just about how to fire guns at people. It is literally the entire infrastructure of our defense establishment, UK, relies on space. And there's been a real huge awakening connecting that capability with the cyber conflicts, which are becoming very, very, very endemic throughout the whole of the Western world. And, and this is being considered, uh, cyber warfare is being considered as a vital component to address with regard to national security interests. Uh, and how does things like the Galileo project all, all tie into this? Presumably Brexit is, is, is a bit of a kind of sore point uh, mm. with regards to all this. Well, I think, you know, hurtling over the edge of a cliff, as it appears, everything is, um, with regard to very little um, planning or infrastructure in place <clears throat> as the great D-Day looms. Um, there is great concern, not only on the manufacturing side, that Britain has invested several billion euros, pounds, into this project and has been a key leader. I can remember back uh, during the Blair administration when, in fact, the UK government was leading, along with the Highways Agency, um, I was part of a consultancy involved with looking at how you could use a European navigation system to be much more sophisticated than the American GPS system. And they were looking there at maintaining observation monitoring um, and position location for every truck um, and low loader that was moving freight right across the whole of Europe using a navigation system. Now, it didn't quite come to having a an integration with personal transport, motor cars, um, be they hydrocarbon or electric, but the idea was back then, and there is a capability for a future Galileo um, add-on to have a capability so that not only does every car know where it is to its driver by the conventional system we now have on GPS, <clears throat> but in fact a Euro control would know where every single car in, in the whole of Europe was and would be able to direct smart motorways and smart roads to divert traffic tens of kilometers away from potential either hazards or, or roadblocks or pileups through accidents or whatever, so that you could run a national smart transportation network. <clears throat> well, the, the plans were, were extraordinarily exotic and, and really very, very exciting and interesting. There was, there was opposition from people who said, well, this is really going to completely nail the privacy laws because because the government will know where every human being is in their vehicle at any single moment and be able to track every single vehicle. And it was also being integrated, and this is what was behind a lot of the British push for Galileo. The Blair government wanted to be able to electronically control the speed of every car so that you couldn't go against the speed limit, so, so that you wouldn't have all, all, all these police cars running around 
chasing speeding cars, that you simply were physically incapable of driving your car beyond the limit grid that the electronic net lowered over your country contained with all the algorithms showing the various limits in Britain, 30 mile an hour, 50 mile an hour, 60 or 70 mile an hour motorways, and, and that cars would be, would be um, regulated and the engines would be rated according to the, the, the performance and be controlled that way. And, and this was realistically examined during the Blair government years by the Highways Authority and by the people who are specialising in these systems. So Britain has been leading Europe initially in the way these things were going. Now <clears throat> we're just playing a bit part in the manufacturer and the relevance of it. But all these plans are there waiting to be implemented. The thing that killed it, and I know the question is going to come to people's minds, well, why didn't it happen? <clears throat> Simply because the processing power wasn't there in the computers that would have been needed to control all this. But those plans are there for when the processing power is. So this is massive. We can't just say, oh dear, we're not part of it anymore, are we? <clears throat> we have to be because we're geographically, we are, we are Europe. Mm. Well, yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? The uh, the Americans have just uh, put their latest supercomputer online, and the, and the processing power of that is just absolutely mind blowing. Yeah. So, so I'm yeah. assuming it would be just a you know a national a national computer center that would do that kind of processing power. That's re- that's really interesting. I, um... And and that morphs over right into defence as well. And and this is one of the reasons because there are a lot of of, of involvements with Galileo potentially with regard to national security concerns. Um, um, all of that is is part of this big shift here in the UK to to ramp up the command and control operations with regard to space activities for the UK. And that's why there's a considerable growth in the number of personnel that will be involved. But the Skynet communication system, which is now into its fifth generation, Skynet 5, um, deployed throughout the world. And, and, of course, services are leased off the back of that to friendly nations for their own defence interests as well. So Britain does play a very, very important role in integrating all these space-based systems, and it's, it's, it's to the concerns of some that it's there as a reality. <clears throat> Most of it is led by defence and national security interests. Yeah, that's 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 that is really interesting. The, 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 with the with the space force, going, if we're going back to Trump, mm. uh, a lot of a lot of the commentators uh, with this last third council meeting were sort of mm. saying that Trump was doing this off the cuff. It was he was kind of not mm. on message, and he was talking about space force rather flippantly. Is is that the actual reality, or is he just doing a what I call a Boris Johnson? No. <laughs> well, it's a 50-50 and take your pick, you know, but I think um, looking at the presentation he made for Space Directive number three, which, which is his third Space Directive, at the same time as he announces formally and made that formal statement, today I am directing the Department of Defense, and then he said the Pentagon, to create a space force and to prepare this for ratification in Congress. This was no flippant um, call-out. A few weeks ago, he started talking about this, didn't he? And, and mm. everybody said, oh, yeah, well, he's, he's just sounding off, and you know it'll all be forgotten. But there's much more behind this and much more to it. And I think the, the tone has concerned some people. It's got formal protests from Russia and from China when he made a very specific point um, with with a lot of, of gesticulation of his arms and so it, you can always tell when when something is really inside Trump's Trump's mm-hmm. priority agenda. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a pause and then the thumb and the forefinger come together up in the air. <laughs> <laughs> and he does that weird kiss thing with his Indeed. Yes, and he said, odd. I am direct we want only not only to explore space, we want to dominate space. And it was that and then the pause dominate space. That's caused concerns and some international reaction. Um, uh, I think that is the Trumpism of what could be a a fairly logical proposal for a space force. I don't think it is presaging an era where we're tearing up the agreements not to put weapons of mass destruction into space. I'm I'm sure that, that... 
never say never, but but I, I I don't think this is part of that. I think it really, really is the fact that that all of a sudden Trump has got space and he's become very excited over the formation of the National Space Council, reformation of it, with Mike Pence there playing a very, very leading role. And Pence is putting himself around every place that there is anything related to space. He's really taken over this. He is he is to the Trump administration what Lyndon Johnson was to the Kennedy administration in the Johnson picked up space and ran with it. He was the man who who processed all of the when he was the um he was the majority leader in Congress. Um he pushed things through very, very strongly um for the development of NASA in that in that year between Sputnik one and the actual formation of NASA in those in those major series of congressional hearings, he was the one who was singly responsible, really. And and he helped to convince Eisenhower that it should be a very open space program. Eisenhower wanted to keep space in the military. We hear this consistently uh, repeated in history books and in narrative that Eisenhower wanted, he did not want the military involved with space. He knew he had this secret project, Corona, under the cover name Discoverer Program, um, but that he, in fact, did not want it all held by the military. Well, that's actually not true. It was James Killian, who had been brought in as head of the President's Science Advisory Committee, who convinced Eisenhower that it must be an open organization, and Johnson supported that, as well as Vice President Nixon under Eisenhower. It was Nixon and James Killian who convinced Eisenhower it would be wrong, Mr. President, you can imagine saying it, to have this contained under the veil of secrecy in the military. The American public can join in this great adventure and should be part of it. So siphon off all of these non-national security interest areas, um, which emerged out of the Vanguard program for the International Geophysical Year, run with that. And then when looking around for an organization, they chose the National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, the NACA, to become the new NASA. And, and Johnson was there. And Johnson was supreme architect of the decision to go to the moon. So Pence, in a way, sees himself as the Johnson to Trump that uh, Johnson was to Kennedy. Wow, that, that, yeah, that's a really interesting analysis of it. What did you think of Trump's sort of sideswipe at uh, United Launch Alliance in that particular meeting? He kind of made uh, some suggestion that they were becoming too expensive when they were both together. Well, I think I think there's no doubt about it. As we look toward the civilian side of NASA, um, United Launch Alliance has been a stitch-up cartel for a number number of years um well that's done it they won't talk to me again will they (laughs) (laughs) but um but realistically they have you know this this very strange alliance really of boeing and lockheed martin as the convergence of these separate competing companies has come right the way down to just boeing and lockheed martin producing the the atlas and the delta four that have underpinned all national security launches now that Elon Musk has got certification for the very highest level of classification for launch of the most ultra-secret satellites for the National Reconnaissance Agency and uh, the U.S. Air Force, um, now there is a, a champion there for lower cost. And I think this is part of Trump's very strong agenda to to move things away from an over-control of central government and the over-pricing um, that these, you, you know, you've, you've had this, this triad. You've had the defense establishment, Boeing and Lockheed Martin, and the checks have just kept flowing out to Boeing and Lockheed Martin, United Launch Alliance. They've already <clears throat> dropped their prices 20% to try to come down closer to SpaceX with the Falcon 9. And, and that is now already launching national security payloads. And the door has been cracked open. And there's a toe holding it open. And the gap will only widen as you get these other players in the commercial launcher market coming in and breaking up the monopoly that United Launch Alliance have had. 
I think it stems from that. And, of course, this is feeding through into the big debate about space launch system and this very, very costly government-run super rocket when you've got potential competitors coming along that could do the job of SLS for much less money. And that, in fact, is already beginning to inform changes that are occurring in NASA's plans for the SLS. So, so really, <laughs> I guess Trump was just saying what the kind of the game is up, really, isn't he? In, in terms of it's not it's not even a veiled uh, statement. It, it, it is. A... There's very little that's veiled about Trump, um, and, and <laughs> <laughs> I think you can certainly see in there that this is very much the same as he has been saying for quite some time, and this emphasis on bringing in the commercial side, he has. He has the kind of approach to things which naturally lends itself to picking up low-cost opportunities as long as they're reliable and consistent and can deliver. He will go for the lower-cost option and uh, because that's the way his, his world has worked before politics. And, and so he's naturally inclined to find these. And, 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 and he has no real allegiance to government infrastructure. Um, he, he talked he talked at his inauguration with regard to the Washington, D.C. bureaucracy as draining the swamp, unquote. Mm. Not my words. He said that and, and served notice that nobody was going to be in that, in that hallowed preserve of government-established traditions. It was all up for grabs. And if there were private organizations that could do the, do the job better... He wouldn't shed a tear or have sleepless nights over completely rolling right over them and going for the better deal. And in essence, this is what government should do. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I guess, I mean, if one person's going to spot monopolies, it's going to be Trump. I mean, he knows all about yeah. that, I'm assuming. Yeah. And uh, and actually, I think it's, it's fair to say that um, Elon Musk, when you read about his when he had to sue NASA to get contracts and, and the yeah. kind of risk he's taking doing things like that. I think yeah. those are kind of the game-changing moments, aren't they? And, of course, yeah. uh, the uh, Falcon Heavy's just been awarded its military yeah. military contract, hasn't it, as well? So right. <laughs> things, yeah. are, yeah. things are moving fast yeah. in that uh, section. Yeah. So yeah. what is the latest with SLS? Shall we move on to that well, story? Yes, I think, I think timely so, because uh, later this year there's going to be big decisions made. The... The plan was, just, just to remind ourselves again, and it, it's fast changing and fast moving, isn't it, Matt, this, this, this mm. uh, story of, this, of, of, of the space launch system. <laughs> but the initial plan was to develop this Block 1 launcher, um, which was advertised of having a 70 metric ton payload capability that initially would fly almost as a proof of concept for the core stage. Um, and the cryogenic propulsion systems inherited from the shuttle with the five-segment booster straddling it. And the upper stage was, of course, this interim cryogenic propulsion stage of the Delta IV. But you can't simply just take a stage from another rocket, bolt it on, and light the blue touch paper. It's, it is all manner of acoustic stress, vibration, integration functions. And so <clears throat> attention has focused on getting what's known as the block one with this with this interim cryogenic stage, which which really um only has the potential power to be able to send um a very limited payload capability out as far as the moon. Um fly that initially unmanned on exploration mission one take it into a halo lunar or, or take it into a retrograde lunar orbit and bring it back to demonstrate the capability of both the integration of SLS and Orion. <clears throat> and then the plan was to move to Block 1B, which was this new upper stage, the exploration upper stage, which essentially is taking the RL-10 uh, engine, uh, of which there would be um, the... Uh, there was only one... In, in the interim stage, and there will be four of these RR-10 engines in the upper stage, essentially the central stage, a variable quantity of um, engines in a, in a central-type stage. <clears throat> but this makes the actual vehicle itself much larger, and, and that is one of the problems. The gap between flying 
the Block 1 and the much more powerful Block 1B was going to be three years because modifications to the mobile launcher to be able to support the Block 1B were necessary and and the contractual estimates on that were about three years. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Congress swept in and took control of this and said, look, why are you wasting three years on this very expensive launcher before we can fly the first humans on Orion? We'll give you 500 million nearly to begin to develop a second mobile launcher already configured to begin work to prepare it for the Block 1B. In the meantime, you can continue to fly the Block 1 and thereby on the basis that planning already is potentially theoretically capable of supporting an SLS flight a year instead of three years between the first SLS launch and the second with crew, you can follow it immediately a year later with a crew, but only with the interim stage. All the while, preparing the second mobile launcher to support Block 1B when that comes on. So that gets you to fly humans on Orion much earlier, two to three years earlier than you would if you had to wait for this mobile launcher to be modified. I mean, it really does speak to the thinness of backup that there is within this whole human spaceflight program at NASA. Only one mobile launcher was being modified to support the SLS. So you modify the SLS, you would wait three years to modify the mobile launcher. There wasn't even a second mobile launcher. NASA had three during the Apollo years. But funding has been pared down so much that it has not only delayed the SLS hugely over this last decade, but it has also pared right down your options on when you can upgrade this launcher. And so Congress has moved in and said, here's the money in NASA really has literally written back in a formal response to Congress and said, well, actually, we didn't expect this. We don't quite know how we're going to spend it or where, but obviously it's going to go on the mobile launcher and there's much bigger tower because in actual fact, in English money, using imperial units, the height of the Block 1 is 322 feet and the height of the Block 1B with the crew is 364 feet. So there's a huge amount that's required in the launch umbilical tower that's stacked up on top of the mobile launcher. And it's that that's been the problem, the fact that you need to get that platform modified with all of the swing arms and the extra height, and and that takes time and money. So what is being looked at now is the first flight of SLS is for around June 2020 now. It's drifted already out of 2019, so we're two years from now, essentially away, uh, notwithstanding any further drift out that might occur, from the first unmanned flight, Exploration Mission 1. Conceivably, if NASA gets its act together straight away, it's got three years now to get the next mobile launcher done and can defer the spending on this much more expensive exploration upper stage while continuing to fly the cheaper and, and, and actually now more capable because it's just had an upgrade to block one from 70 metric tons to 95 metric tons. That's the new performance analysis from NASA that by reshaping the ascent trajectory, you can get an extra 25 metric tons of lift into low Earth orbit than we thought we could with a 70 metric ton block one. So that allows you to send astronauts now on exploration mission two, conceivably as early as 2021, instead of 2023 or 2024, all the way out to the moon and back. But that's going to be the first flight of the environmental control system in in the Orion. So the trajectory is being modified so that it will first do big looping high high Earth orbit. It would go from LEO, low Earth orbit, on that first crewed mission, up to high Earth orbit, and then finally boost out into lunar orbit. And and that is fast-tracking the onloading of crew missions on the SLS program. It also frees up the SLS program not to crash head-to-head with the potential launch of the Europa Clipper which is now scheduled for around June 2022, and launches to Jupiter for the Europa mission come every 13 months. 
whereas missions to the moon occur every month in, in order to get the kind of flight trajectories that NASA wants. That is a, it's a bit of a game changer, isn't it? I mean, it's really waiting is. until 2023 just seemed yeah. an interminably long time before you saw SLS in action. There's yeah. still something that upsets me about SLS, and that's those beautiful space shuttle engines that were yeah. reusable and now crashing into the sea. There's yes. just, something, yes. there's just yeah. something not quite right about it. There are, there are studies underway with regard to the reusability of the propulsion of the thrust section underneath the core stage. There are, because that is being driven <clears throat> to try to massively get that. Just as ULA have had to to drop the prices of, of their heavy lifters for defense satellites by 20%, so too is NASA now looking to have to reduce because the commercial competitors are knocking on the door. Why use SLS when potentially coming down the road, you've got a lot of launch capability from the private sector at much less cost. And the interesting thing, the real knock-on consequence, almost an elephant in the room that is not being really looked at, is the fact that if this pushes the Block 1B further down the road, which will be attractive for NASA because it will phase out the funding, because unfortunately the, the, the bite they have to take <clears throat> is the fact that there was only one interim upper stage that was being funded because it was supposed to go from block one to block one B straight after the first launch. And the new ex and, and the the manufacturer of the interim cryogenic propulsion stage, the ICPS, just exclusively for block one, the buy at a discount for a second and a third and a fourth has expired. <laughs> so NASA's yeah. now going to have to pay a full cost for another one or two or three or how many, just to keep the block one flying. But it does mean that it can more than save that extra little bit of extra cost by extending the exploration of the stage because there are there are problems with the exploration of the stage already already appearing and it's a very, very expensive stage. So as a subset to this story, NASA is now looking and has gone out for bids on actually a cheaper alternative to the exploration of the stage. Because if 1B, SLS-1B, does not fly for several years after Block 1 starts, there's nothing that can launch the gateway into lunar orbit. Because the Block 1 is only capable of carrying a few tons, not enough for a Block 1 module, that NASA had hoped to fly, along with the first crew, on the Block 1B three years after Exploration Mission 1. So there's a lot that's up in the air on this. And, and pacing down the interest that the Trump administration has always to bring in the commercial sector, NASA is now looking and is talking with Bezos and with Elon Musk about possibly using commercial exclusively to build the gateway, which will take further responsibilities of SLS and open up even further criticism of why the heck it's even doing this anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not all good news. It, it might think that the headlines are good, but behind all this, the new exploration yeah. of the stage, which is, is already pushing hard on NASA's capabilities financially. Remember, NASA's budget is flatlined. It's not going anywhere upward to pay for anything. Anything that's bought has to be paid for by money saved from something else or something else that's cancelled. Yeah, it's it's very much like a game of chess, isn't it? That you've got this, you you move you move one piece yes. and suddenly yes. a whole new game yes. appears. Yes, so yeah, that's really interesting. So just to just to wrap up this yes. uh, episode, um, yes. you had some news about the Cosmos Pavilion. Oh, in, yes, uh, and that, yes, yes, indeed. And, and I, well, it, gosh, I can remember back in the early 1980s when I first started going to Moscow on quite frequent trips. And, and that was a wonderful part of Moscow to go and see this, this great uh, full-scale mock-up of, of the Soyuz launch vehicle and, uh, and the pavilion there, which was, which was obviously very, very, very run down and, and, and quite, quite reflective of, of the, the cash-strapped 
early years of the Soviet regime, or early post-war years of the Soviet regime, early phase of the space program when they really wanted to put something out for the public to see. So it had that very sad, tatty look to it. Yeah. And, and the... Putin administration has been working hard to try to elevate the level of education among young people, and it has set up a number of high-tech educational institutions for fast-tracking, talented youngsters. Um, it's concerned that there's not enough youngsters going into science and engineering, that the general educational infrastructure in Russia today is not what Putin wants. And so he has personally backed a bid in several of the territories of the former Soviet Union and the Federation of Russian Republics, of course, uh, includes a lot of territories that are still under, under the influence of Moscow. And the regeneration of interest in these high-tech areas has as his personal vanguard the refurbishment and complete reopening of the Cosmos Pavilion in Moscow. And, and that was opened appropriately on the 12th of April, the celebratory anniversary of the flight of Yuri Gagarin this year and uh, accompanied with a great big party afterwards and, and, and a light and sound show and we've had a lovely report for this next issue of Spaceflight from a guy who was able to, to actually have a tour of the new facility and behind this is not just a showcase for for look what Russia's achieved, but actually pointing forward to the future <clears throat> and, and is very much a part of this new push for channeling talented and gifted young children, young people, <clears throat> into to an educational stream that can satisfy their interest levels and their capabilities and can fulfill their aspirations. And, and it really is a very, very, very concerted effort. And, and this is not a PR exercise because the further you dig behind the scenes, Putin's investing a lot of personal um, investment in, in this in terms of, of his reputation within those who support him in Russia, of which there are a considerable number. There's a very, very strong support for Putin among young people who see him bringing Russia back into the position of being a major player. And in world terms, in world terms, um, it is no longer that when you consider that the entire population of Russia is only 50% more than that of the UK, and the defense budget of Russia is less than that of the UK. Right, and, yes. he's, and Russian people have the highest per capita ownership of books of any country in the world. I saw this in spades when I went on several visits and had the opportunity to visit a lot of these people in their homes and it was extraordinary then and it is now the subsidy for libraries and the consumption of the printed word in Russia is far beyond anything we've got in the West and there is a cultural connection between pride in their country, pride in their nation and how for whatever people may think of Putin or whatever the international situation is between the West and Russia itself, deep inside there, there is a deep longing to make Russia proud again and to put it back in, in that central position. It has for centuries sought when Peter the Great came to work in the London shipyards as a worker, and nobody knew who he was, to get experience in what it was like to be in a growing democracy. Russia has always desired this, been led by tyrants, but as always, its people have, learned, have yearned for that cultural base that they always felt that, that they owned naturally and, and educationally, and have always put high, high merit on those levels. And I think in this regard, we should we should congratulate Putin because he's fought hard against opposition to put funding into these scholarship programs, academia, and he's pushing upward 
the technological capabilities of Russia and connecting it to its, its historic legacy through the space program. And that's good news. Yeah, it's it, for me that I, it's quite funny. I had this conversation with Alicia, the uh, Russian uh, founder of the of Mars Nation, and uh, when she was describing the Russian education system, it's like, yeah, this that's the kind of education system I'd like to see in in Britain, really, that where yeah. where education is totally embraced, and that and that and yeah to to be smart and to be good at science is 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 a badge to wear rather than you know yes. getting called a geek it's kind yes. of it's quite funny isn't it and and, and yes. you know if i guess post if we had a post brexit britain we we could actually learn and and this almost pains me to say it, we could actually learn something from putin it sounds like so that's really interesting well you know my philosophy is to and and while while um I, I, I have to admit <clears throat> that um, I, my, my natural instincts are, are, are to be very wary, um, to be somewhat cynical, <laughs> <laughs> and not to take people wholly at face value. Um, but the more you dig behind the scenes and behind all the propaganda headlines that, that saturate the Western media, the more you look, um, if only for those who are so suspicious they cannot give credence to anything that happens in Russia. Okay, well, always best to keep your your friends close, but your enemies closer. So why not be close to them? And if, like a lot of us, you feel that we should really engage, and okay, if we do have this post-Brexit world, maybe there is an opportunity for us to wipe the slate clean and liberate ourselves from being owned by prejudice and propaganda. Because these people are like us, and at their core, there is a deep desire to work internationally on extraordinary activities and ventures. And I applaud the way, like you, that they do have a great pride in excellence and in skill and in talent and in capabilities. And, and that is something I have no wish to make um, conjectural comment about about education systems here. I'm not qualified to do that but but i i just feel very much that we need to embrace excellence and that we need to show we need to push upward rather than to put a top-down lid for fear of, of of losing out at the lower levels we should always support that we really have to as a caring society that is one of the most important priorities of a caring democracy is to look after the disaffected and the disenfranchised but do not deny those who have the capabilities, the aspiration, the drive and the energy to excel because that is how we will all be better and produce more for those who never will have those opportunities and who are within those levels in society for which through no fault of their own, they're unable to to elevate themselves upwards through it. So if only to get the resources, you know, to, to yeah. operate a, a socially egalitarian society, we should push excellence and we should strive to drive it upward. I actually went to the, the Cosmos Pavilion back just as Putin had taken power, sort of about 2000, right. 2001-ish. And right. uh, I thoroughly recommend going to that part of the world. It was uh, it was such a brilliant trip to Moscow. I loved the underground. I loved the I loved the Cosmos Pavilion, actually. It, was, yeah. it had a kind of weird... It had that old, weird Russian feel about it where there was a very stern lady putting the <laughs> video cassettes into the, <laughs> into the machine. <laughs> and they, and they, they something, there was something really brilliant about it about it and the uh the little doggy spacesuits yeah. were, were were so cute <laughs> but yeah it was brilliant so uh, I'd, I'd i'd absolutely love to go again and see what they've done well it's good to know uh, it's been revitalized isn't it yeah no absolutely I'd, mm. i'm um I'm, I'm planning my next holiday already well we've got <laughs> we've got some pictures in the next issue of space flight so so it's just a sample there of, of of how really nice and 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 modern it looks Thank you very much for uh, joining me again this week, David. It's been an absolute pleasure, as always. Well, thank you, Matt. It's, it, it's always good to talk with you, and, and, uh, and there's always so much to talk about, isn't there? Oh, no, no, absolutely. <laughs> it's, uh, only a month goes by and a load yeah. happens. It's quite yeah. funny, isn't it? <laughs> thank you very much, David, and I'll, um, I'll speak to you next, next month. Look forward to that, Matt. Very much so indeed. So, yes, David in fine form, as always... What do you think? Just keeps banging them out, doesn't he? He can talk space, that man. He, he can really talk can. Space. 
a space fact that I just thought was absolutely genius. Go on. Uh, this was really bizarre. I was on my way home last night and a friend of mine texted me and said, Matt, is it true that the boosters on rockets have to be a certain size because of horse and carts? And I'm going, what the heck is he talking about? Mm. And uh, so I did a little bit of research. Right. This, this, this apparently is true. So uh, back in the day, imagine in Roman times, uh, they used to have horse and carts, chariots. Mm. And these chariots, of course, are roughly the width of a horse's bum. Right? Oh, okay. Four, four foot, eight and a half inches. Sounds like a weird thing. But anyone who knows their onions will have recognised four feet, eight and a half inches as the standard railroad gauge. Oof. Now, the reason why that came about is because that all these standard chariots have worn grooves in the road. So all the equipment that made those kind of things was suitable for building uh, like the new carriages for trains. And so they made the train tracks exactly the same four feet, eight and a half inches. Ah. Now, and this was in England, of course. And then, the, then when uh, the, a lot of the expats went over to America to build the railroads in America, yes. they carried on using four foot, eight and a half inches. Ah. There we go. So they, they're stuck with this, uh, th this size of railway, weird uh, size of rail. Uh, but the SRBs that were built for the space shuttle had to travel from the factory in Utah to the launch site. And part of their journey meant that they had to go through a tunnel, which is only slightly wider than the railroad track, which meant that uh, Thiokol, who made the SRBs, um, had to make them small enough to fit in the tunnel. They'd actually like to have made them slightly wider. But there you go. So the size of a horse's bum does determine the size of the shuttle's solid rocket boosters. That is genius. There we go. You heard it here first. Well, not here first. I found this on no, a website no, called this is, this is, Astro Digital. Sorry, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, you haven't heard it here first. Yeah, you haven't heard it here first. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> Love it. So we're going to have a big shout out for all our new patrons uh, next week. Next week, Thank get you ready. very much for everything. Everyone who's been uh, dropping in, everyone who's been interacting with uh, Twitter uh, and all some brilliant questions, follow-up questions for Alan Bond as well. If you've got follow-up questions for David Baker, same applies. Just get them in. I speak to David every month, so get your questions over because David is a walking encyclopedia and Alan Bond, of course, is a walking god. It's just all great <laughs> stuff, so listen out. Listen out. So, shall we say goodbye to the listeners and let them get on with their week? Goodbye, listeners. And Matt, safe journey to South America. Don't have too much Thank fun you. without me, will you? I won't. But I'm going to have some ace pictures and an ace report for you, James. You, it's going to be you awesome. Better. You have been listening to the Interplanetary Podcast. Putting, Putting the ace, ace back, back into, into space. space. Yoga flame. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> bye bye.